therefore we'd like for you to use those. Uh, again, have your Bibles on the ready, listen carefully to what's said, and uh, we look forward to the study. We're going to start out with a word of prayer. Our friend Jimmy Michaels is visiting us from Tullahoma. We're going to ask Jimmy to come to the mic and lead us in a word of prayer, then we'll turn it over to Scott. This evening, we give you thanks, Lord, for the day and for the blessings that we have received within it. For this opportunity that you have given us that we might be able to assemble together as brothers and sisters in Christ and as friends and neighbors to be able to worship you and to serve you even this evening. Father, we're thankful for our health, for our family, our friends, for the material blessings that you have bestowed upon us. But most of all, Father, do we thank you for the spiritual blessings that we enjoy and that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're thankful for the forgiveness of sins that we have through him, and we ask that you look down upon us with tender mercy and forgive us and cleanse us even this evening. We might stand before you, Father, pure and just and holy, and that our prayer might not be an abomination before thee. We're thankful for this opportunity that has been afforded us by the College View Church this opportunity that we might come and sit at our brother Smelter's feet and listen to him as he explains unto us your divine and holy will. We're thankful, Father, for all those spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus, for your mercy, your grace, your patience and long-suffering toward us, the gift of your Son and his willingness to come and suffer and die for us, that we through him might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. For the Spirit who has revealed that truth to us, and for that truth we have this evening in our language, that we can sit and meditate upon it so that we can know of thee and know how you have us to live. We pray for our brother Smelser this evening, that you might give him a good memory of the things that he's prepared to say to us, and that he might say just those things that we need to hear this evening, Father, that we might be better servants of thine. And if there be one in this audience this evening that's never obeyed the gospel, that something be said or done that might prick their hearts, to obedience to thee while they have time and opportunity. You're one that might be overtaken in sin that they would return to thee. Continue with this good church, Father, and their efforts to spread your gospel in this community. We pray for their elders, their deacons. We pray for Greg and his family and ask that you be with each and every member that they might all be workers together. They might accomplish the greatest amount of good to your honor and to your glory. Father, we're thankful for that church that Jesus purchased with his blood and for the fact that we can be a part of it. Be with those that might be sick. Care for them, Father, as only you can. Bless us in thy service. Use us each to thy glory. When our life upon earth is over, we ask only a peaceful hour to make our departure to come to thee. For this prayer we ask in Jesus' name, and we ask it according to thy will. Amen. I'd like to begin tonight by... Thanking you for the opportunity to come down and talk to you about this subject, and also just compliment you on the families that I've seen here and met and gotten to know adult children and younger kids here uh, that I've seen. Uh, I think to a large degree I'm preaching to the choir here when we're talking about raising godly children and, and training them up in the ways of the Lord. And I just want to compliment you on the fine job that, that, that I've been seeing done. We're talking about child training and particularly avoiding parenting pitfalls. Last night we focused on younger children, and I want to make two more points on that before we proceed to older children 
this evening. I ran out of time before I had time to touch on these tonight. These are two in particular that I think are quite important. The failure to use rod and reproof. The book of Proverbs says the rod and reproof bring wisdom. And I want you to think about that for a moment, why that's important. If you just use the rod, what has the child learned? Some of you may have grown up in a home where if a parent got irritated or aggravated, they just reach out and smack the child. There's some people that are abusive. They might strike the child in the face or just out of meanness. But even if it's a, a swat on the behind, just like that. Don't do that. Stop it. What has the child learned? In some cases, they've learned to stay away from dad. <laughs> you know, dad's in that room. Go to a different room. That doesn't mean that they're learning anything necessarily. What if we just use reproof and there's nothing to back it up? My wife was at Walmart one time and there was a little kid in the little kitty seat there in the buggy. And he was just pitching a fit, kicking or trying to kick his mom, just total rebellion. He's trying to hurt her. I think he was hitting her or kicking her. And I can imagine the child, you know, training books that she had read must have told her, explain your feelings to the child. If you haven't trained your child to care about other people and show respect to other people, he's not going to care how you feel if there's been no training. If there hasn't been love and patience and guidance and training and support and encouragement and discipline, he's not going to care how you feel. So here's the mom. He's hitting her. He's kicking her. She leans over and she says, Mommy doesn't like it when you do that. Which, of course, is exactly why the boy was doing that. He leaned up as far as he could, got his face in his mom's face, and just yelled at her to shut up. What a foolish woman. The Bible says the rod and reproof. I want you to think about the value in the lecture. How many of you grew up in a home where you would get a spanking? I'm not talking about abuse. I'm talking about a spanking delivered when you deserved it. But before you got the spanking, you had to listen to a lecture from your mom or dad. Raise your hand if you grew up in that kind of home. You are blessed people. Do you remember wishing that the lecture would end and you could just go ahead and have the spanking and go your way? Why? Because the spanking touched us on the backside, but the lecture touched our heart. It made us think about how we were treating our brother or our sister or what we had done or what God wanted us to do or how that affected our parents or something else. And that hurt inside here, didn't it? And it kind of turbo boosts the spanking. You ever been to the doctor and he said, I'm going to give you a shot? It's not so bad if he just goes, well, you need a shot. Hold out your arm. It's not so bad. But what if he goes, you got bad knees. You need a shot. It's going to hurt. I hate having to do this. 
Roll up your sleeve. <laughs> You're concentrated on it more. It hurts more. When somebody just swats a child and he's not given time to think about why this is going on, it's not nearly as effective. The Bible says, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 15, the rod and reproof bring wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Don't try doing just reproof. Don't try doing just the spanking. Put them together. And then let him go apologize to his sister or to his mother or to his brother. And then let him get a hug after it's over with. If a child is spanked and he goes away angry, your job's not done. Number ten, settling for situation control instead of training the child. We mentioned last night the attitude of some fathers, you're not going to do that as long as you're under my roof. And that's woefully inadequate because we need to be training our children so they're going to behave godly whoever's roof they're under. Another mistake is when people just think, I'm going to control my child. I want to give you a couple of illustrations. This is uh, Michael and Debbie Pearl are a couple that have written a lot on child discipline. I'm not going to take time to describe the one that they described, but I'm going to mention two, one with my daughter Brienne and one with Zach right here. I've got six children. They're all four years apart from 27 to 7, and three boys and three girls. There three of them never decided to just go for a conflict with, with, with their parents. Uh, three of them did at young ages. And in some ways, they ended up behaving better than some of the kids that kept doing skirmishes. With Brienne, who I used to, if I just looked at Brienne, that was about all it took. She would just, and, and if I spanked her, that was all that was needed. But when she was three, it was her job to get in her booster seat and put herself in it. I got in the car, started backing up. My older daughter said, Dad, Brienne didn't get in her car seat. I said, Brienne, get in the car seat. She didn't do it. So I said, well, you got to get a spanking. So I pulled over by a creek. I got out, and we had the lecture. And uh, by the way, one way, a good, one way that you can do it with a child is just review what's happened. Oh, no. What did Mommy tell you to do? Mommy said to put it down. <laughs> and, and what did you do? I didn't put it down. Say, so now what do you have to get? I got to get a spanking. And that just involves the child in it. Sometimes when they're little, and I'd spank it on them later, I'd have to spank them on, on the bottom. But sometimes I'd even just involve them, and I'd say, okay, which hand? And they would go. <laughs> and it just it helped them not feel like the victim here, that understand I broke the rules, I violated it, now it's time for my spanking. But this time she's just defiant. So I get her out, and we have the lecture. And I explain my job. And I took a switch. And I gave her spanking. I spanked her pretty good. She cried a little bit, but not all that much. I said, now get in the car and get in your car seat. She got down beside the car seat. I brought her back out, lectured some more, spanked harder. said, now get in your car seat. This time, she sat down beside the car seat. Got her back out. We gave the speech again. Spanked her harder. said, this time you get down in your car seat. She got in and sat down beside the car seat, three years old. Got out again, lectured it five times. Finally, 
she got in her car seat and buckled herself in. Later that day, I said, I said, Brianne, I said, did you think that if you kept disobeying, Daddy was going to give up? And she went, uh-huh. And that day, my little girl needed to find out that Daddy wasn't going to give up. And I didn't have any more trouble with it. Zach did it with a pair of pants one time. He was just a little guy. And I said, Zach, come here, let me put your pants on. Uh, I, I said, come over here, let me put your pants on. And just stood there. And I knew he understood. Now, I could have gone over there and just put the pants on. I'm bigger than him. I could put his pants on. Is that tr controlling or training? What does Proverbs 22, 6 say to do? It doesn't say control your children, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. What does it say? Somebody's got that text open. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train up your children. So he needed to obey. So I said, Zach, come over here. He wouldn't do it. The whole family came in. They said, Zach, go to Dad. He would go to Brianne. He would go to Adam. He would go to Mom. He would go to April. He wouldn't come to me. So I spanked him. I spanked him here. 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 We talk about it in between. I spanked him on the feet. I didn't, you know, I was running out of places to spank him. And I, he would cry some, but then he just would not do it. And I gave him a bit of time to think about it, then came back in, and finally, finally, he came, and I was able to put his pants on. Now, in both of those situations, what would have been easier to do? I could have put Brienne in the car seat. I could have picked up Zach and said, I'm going to put your pants on you. In each of those cases, what would they have not had to do? They wouldn't have had to deny self. They wouldn't have had to have chosen to respect authority and to submit to the rules. It would have been me doing it. So we took the time, and in both those cases, Zach's basically never given me trouble since. Brian's never given me any trouble since. They both went for it, and they found out it's not going to work, and just haven't given me trouble since. Luke is a skirmisher. He's my seven-year-old. He's never done that, but he'll keep skirmishing. <laughs> but he never, he never goes for a real defiance. Uh, I, going over this point one time in Maryland, a woman told me a few days later, she said that was a life-altering experience for me. I was one where I would just, if she wouldn't get in the chair, I'd just put her in the chair. And she said, now, she said, I make her do it. And she said, after three days... She said, of just nipping every defiance in the bud and making her obey, she said, after three days, she is a happier child. And now she's being obedient. So, what does the Bible say? Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train their hearts. There was a little boy I heard about. He was told to sit down. I think maybe this was at school or something or maybe a Bible class. And he didn't want to sit down. Finally, he sat down, but he goes, all right. But I'm still standing up on the inside. As long as they're still standing up on the inside, the job's not done. We're there to train their hearts to where they want to do what's right. And do you see how that's going to make it much more healthy and easy for them to submit their will to their eternal father when they grow older? If they grow up and we establish a precedent toward the father and authority in the home that you do what's right some of the time. 
You do what's right unless you can get around it. You do what's right unless you can lie about it. Have you seen people that behave like that in relationship to their Heavenly Father? Take the time to instill the right attitudes when they're young. That prepares them for a right relationship with their Heavenly Father. Now let's turn our attention to older children. What does Paul say in Colossians 3.21 and also Ephesians 6.4? Turn to those passages, please. Ye fathers, Ephesians 6.4, provoke not your children to wrath, but nurture them in the chastening and admonition of the Lord. Colossians 3.21, fathers, provoke not your children that they be not discouraged. So the Bible teaches discipline, but twice here Paul said this, and there's mothers that can provoke their children to wrath, but he specifically singles out fathers for this. Some of you perhaps grew up in this type of home. You either get criticism or nothing. And a lot of fathers have had that attitude. If things are being done right, nothing's said. There's no support, there's no affection, there's no kindness, it's just quiet. If somebody makes a mistake, then there's criticism. Would you want to grow up in a home like that? Is that a nurturing environment? Some children misbehave so that they can get some attention. I knew, uh, I know of one family where the woman has a son who became a very uh, disturbed sexual pervert. And when he was a child, his father rejected him. And so he longed for men to accept him. And he ended up in some sort of reform school or something, and they had guards there, officials in white coats, and if you behaved badly, they would restrain you. And when he was just a kid, he told his mommy why he behaved badly in school. He said, Mom, do you know why I act bad in school? So that those men will hold me. That's sad. Some fathers expect talents beyond their children's capacity. You know, you've seen, how many of you have been to a Little League game, and there's some kids out there playing, they want to have fun, but there's one parent that's making everybody miserable, making their son miserable, making the coach miserable, making everybody miserable. And you can kind of see what's going on there sometimes. He thought he was going to be some great baseball player, and of course he wasn't. And then one day the doctor says, it's a boy! He goes, and now he's going to demand and expect something that maybe the child's not even interested in or, you know, particularly athletically inclined for. If your child can't carry a tune, don't expect them to be an opera singer. If your child has limited... Sometimes I was talking with somebody here last night about dealing with children with special needs. In children with special needs, people have two types of attitudes. Some people think, oh, just let them do anything because they're a special needs child. Other people, and good parents will realize... I'm not going to expect them to be able to accomplish this or this because that's not what they're going to be able to do. But I know they can do this and this, and they expect that of that child. 
and then the structure and, and, and the expectation and the child being able to counsel much, much better for the child. And don't be the kind of father that your, the way you treat your children depends on your mood. We talked about boundaries last night and fences. I've heard that people with cattle, if you have an electric fence, I've heard that after a while you can turn off the electricity. I don't know if that's so or not, because the cows have learned where the fence is. What if the fence is moving? What if one day, you know, you come home and you can sass your mom and dad thinks it's funny. And then another day you come home and you accidentally knock something over and you get smacked. His dad's in a bad mood or drunk or something like that. That's like a cow being out in the field and those electric fences are moving all the time. You know, you look around, it looks good, you start to eat some clover, fence comes up and gets you. What a miserable situation to grow up in. Let the boundaries be there. Deal with your children. Correct them when they're wrong. Discipline them when they needed it. Don't be discouraging and provoking for wrath. Number 12. The mistake of denying them the backbone that comes from standing up instead of fitting in. Sometimes the parents, we think, oh, I don't want him to miss out on that. Oh, I'd hate for her to miss out on that. And maybe it's unwholesome. Maybe it's, oh, her friends are all trying out for cheerleader. Oh, I'd hate for her to miss out on that. Oh, please let her miss out on that. I don't understand why we have a system where we have girls that wear basically color, team colored coordinated underwear under their skirt because they know they're going to be showing it and stand out there and, and dance around and the moms think that's a wonderful thing. It's not. Why parents want to teach their children to be exposing themselves instead of behaving responsibility. Which kingdom do we want our children to fit into? The world or the kingdom of God? Does strength come from doing what is easy or doing what is hard? Let them learn to be dark or let them learn to be lights in a dark world. If we make every decision easy and comfortable for them, how are they going to be prepared to make tough decisions? If the, the standards that we set, oh, well, we'll skip services for this because this is fun. What have we just told them? We've told them God's not first. Our entertainment is first. Do you think they'll get that lesson? They'll get that lesson. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual service. Be not fashioned according to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Jesus said in Luke 6:46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? James chapter 4, verse 4. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Jesus said, you're to be lights in the world. Lights look different than darkness. The sooner our children learn to be willing to be different when they need to be different, the more backbone they build to be able to face the different challenges that they will face. Entertainment choices. Clothing choices. 
you know, uh, let, let's think about clothing for just a minute. Think about fences. You've seen privacy fences. Maybe somebody has a pool in their backyard and they, they have up a privacy fence. It could be an attractive, nice fence, but it might look something like that. You can't see through it. Then you've seen a millionaire's home where he has that wrought iron fence out front. What's that fence designed for? He wants to be able to show off what's inside. And so you, you could climb through it, you could climb over it, because he wants as little fence there as possible to be able to look through. And that's like clothing. Some people wear clothing for privacy, to cover up their flesh and their bodies. Other people know that there's clothing out there designed for the very opposite purpose. It's kind of like the difference between uh, gift wrap. When you wrap gift wrap around a present, you don't want somebody to see inside. You don't use see-through stuff. When you go to buy some Oscar Mayer bacon, how do they make that wrapper? They want to expose the product. Think about the clothing that our children wear. Train them to have a sense of modesty and decency. Train their hearts early on so that you don't have to have the battle with it once they're 16. And if you let them run around wearing next to nothing around the opposite gender all the way up until they're in high school and then suddenly decide, oh, well, now you're not going to wear that, you failed to instill a sense of shamefastness in that child and a sense of modesty in that child. Think about those things. And have you ever heard somebody have this attitude? Well, if we don't allow this, they might rebel and leave the church. What good is being in the church if we've left the Lord? Church at Laodicea. They were still meeting. What did the Lord say about it? I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Our job is not to train our children to be faithful to the church. Our job is to train our children to be faithful to the Lord. When they are faithful to the Lord, they will be his people, and they will seek out congregations of his people to worship with and be loyal to. But if we train people just to be loyal to a church, the churches drift. The churches go into apostasy. The churches lower their standards and to begin to accommodate the world. Have you ever seen that? Of course they do. Does the Lord do that? Teach your children to be faithful to the Lord, and then they'll be part of his church. Number 13, mistaking taking them to church for bringing up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I was met a man one time, and he said something that was very sad. He was talking about his children. They were all middle-aged. He had several. And he said very sadly, none of them are faithful. And he was mystified. This is what he said. I don't understand what happened. We took them to church all those years. And as soon as he said that, I knew what had happened. You see what he thought was going to do the job? We took him to church all those years. So you took him to services on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. 
How much of the week is that? How much of the rest of the week are they exposed to other things? And to think that that's going to do the job? What did it say back there in Deuteronomy 6 where we looked yesterday? What did the text say? Teach your children these things. When you rise up, when you lie down, when you walk in the way. There's kids that just about see more McDonald's commercials in a week than they do have Bible study time, you know, in the week when you add it up all together. Number 14. We already covered that one. And the other one, I meant to take out that chart. Number 15. Assuming cultural norms and low expectations. It's kind of like terrible twos. Um, you know, some people, oh, twos, oh, it's going to be terrible. Terrible twos. Twos aren't terrible at all. Twos are fantastic. When you're training a child, when you love a child, when you're spending time with the child, when you're giving the child the nurture and, and support that they need and the correction that they need and the discipline that they need and the attention that they need, they're joy. Just because the world has terrible twos doesn't mean that you've got to have a terrible two. And then all of these teens, well, it's just a phase. It's just a phase. You know how teenagers are. They're all rebellious. No, they're not. It may be that it's culturally common to have rebellious teens. And is that culturally common? Yes. You know what else is culturally common? Ungodly adults. That's also culturally common. And if you want an ungodly adult, then just be prepared for and expect having rebellious teens, and you'll be grooming them to be ungodly adults. Josiah. 16 years old, young king, 2 Chronicles 34, 1 through 3, and he sets his heart to serve the Lord. Is that what most 16-year-olds do? But is that what that 16-year-old did? Timothy. You look at Paul picking up Timothy in Acts chapter 16, and then you see when he writes to him later, and he says, let no man uh, despise your youth. It could be, and so he's still a youth at this later time. It could be that Timothy was very young when Paul picked him up. And yet, he was well reported by the brethren. Paul wanted him to go. Wise parenting and consideration of trajectory. Lot. It, one of the reasons, I think, that it's important when, when looking at qualifications of elders, that they have faithful children. There's a lot of good, good men who have not been particularly wise parents. There are some good men in the Bible that were not particularly effective parents. Samuel was a good man. Wasn't the best, wasn't the most successful father. David had some wonderful qualities. Sure wasn't the best father. Wise parents think about trajectory where this is going, what this is leading to. Foolish parents will just think, well, that's, it's not absolutely wrong. We're going to tolerate that. Well, I hate seeing things, so we'll let that happen. Well, and they don't notice where it's going until it's too late to correct it. There was an old Barney Fife episode where, of course, he was you know, shown to be silly in the show, as he always was, but I liked what he said. You know, he was giving a device to Andy. He said, nip it, nip it in the bud. I'm a big believer in nipping it in the bud. 
when you start to see something going off, when you start to see that your child is suddenly so much more interested in this music group than he is of anything of any moral value, that his heroes are all people that don't have morals instead of people that you know that he should respect or Bible characters that he should respect, get control of that situation quick. Don't just think this is a phase. He, he needs some heart adjustment. Somebody else, you know, the rich young ruler could have some money and it was a problem to him. Zacchaeus had money and it wasn't a problem to him. The Lord didn't tell Zacchaeus to get rid of his money. If you've got a child and he's starting to play the banjo or whatever and his heart is clearly on the Lord, well, then that's fine. But when you see it start to be too important to him, no. I'll give you one story about Zach the other day. Um, we homeschooled, but we, uh, somebody told me about an activity down at the middle school for the kids for basketball. So I took Zach down there, and he went through the basketball program. And at the end, they had a family day, and everybody came together. And, but it was on a Wednesday night. And so Zach knew, well, we'd be leaving early to go to services, because where we worship in Gettysburg, uh, we meet on Wednesday night, so we're going to be at Bible class on Wednesday night. Well, Zach was doing really well. There was, in his age group, there was uh, a number of kids, and he was in the layup competition. He made every one in the allotted time. And there were a few other boys did, so then they had a runoff, and they gave a shorter time. And he made a real high score and made every one of them in that, but there was time to go, so he couldn't have the later competition. Later, they brought some trophies to him. Uh, he won, I think, third in hot shots, second in layups, because... He wasn't there, so the other boy that was there rightfully got the thing, and defensive player of the year. Well, it was nice to get those things, but I told him what I was more proud of was when it was time to go to services, he completely understood that. It meant he minced out on the pizza. He didn't get to go ahead and keep doing the competition and maybe got a higher score and a better trophy because he knew the thing we're going to put first is God. So it was time to go without a word of complaint. He hopped in the car. And off we go to Bible stuff. Now, if I start seeing in him that he would rather play basketball than honor God, then that's when he's done playing basketball. Think about tra trajectory. Expect training God. Number 16, going into defensive mode when our children are wrong. You ever seen parents do that? I don't know if we have any school teachers here. Do we have any school teachers here by a show of hands? Years ago, when a child got in trouble at school, they went home, and when the parent found out about it, he was in trouble at home because he had misbehaved at school. But now what too many times happens is if the child gets in trouble at school, when the parents hear about it, what's the parent's attitude? Or too many parents, not all. They're upset with the school. It's either my child didn't did that, or if you were keeping better control in the classroom, that wouldn't have happened. It must be your fault or it must be somebody else's fault. Or you expect too much of them and they just go into defensive mode. I think maybe part of it is because people know. the. I'm not sure what all the reason is. But I think part of it is that sometimes people know they're doing a lousy job with parenting and they don't want to be held accountable. And what's the best offense? A good defense. You know, they say, and so you just... 
you know, they just try to blame somebody else. Excuses are as old as sin. What was the first sin? Genesis chapter 3. As soon as they sinned, what happened next? Excuses. Defending, denying, redirecting blame. First Timothy 5.21, Paul told Timothy, do all things without partiality. If somebody else's kid had done that, and you thought that would be a bad thing, when it's your kid, accept that it's a bad thing. I appreciate the parents who from time to time have come to me and said, I want you to know your son was acting up in class tonight. You heard he was crawled out the table. And I said, thank you for telling me that. Because I didn't see it. And they're my friends when they come and they let me know. When people help you, they're doing you a favor. Don't get into the habit of going into defense mode. Isaiah 5.20, woe to them that call evil good and good evil. Sometimes my kids have done something wrong, and there's no sense in me trying to claim that it was good. And if you start a pattern of bailing them out, don't be surprised when they come to expect it even in a very real and financial and judicial system sort of way. Don't start off that role. Number 17, focusing on the home income over the home outcome. There's a lot of people in our society that spend more time planning the wedding than they do the marriage. There's a lot of people in our society more concerned about what the house looks like than what the home is like. The Bible says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fat knock served with hatred. Proverbs 15, 17. And how are we doing on time? Very good. It's the home, not the house. It's the family, not the stuff. Do our homes reflect scriptural priorities or cultural priorities? Remember what Titus 2, 3 through 5 says. Older women train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sober-minded, chaste, workers at home, kind, being in subjection to their own husbands. Number 18. The danger of underestimating threats. And I don't have time to talk about each of these in detail at all. There's one I want to mention in some detail. Corruption from entertainment media and from the Internet. I deal with young men during the summer. Good young men from good families. And it is disturbing and shocking how many of them have gotten in trouble with Internet pornography. I, if there was one sin I could take out of this world, I believe that's what I would pick. I'm so tired of seeing it ruin people and destroy people. I've known of people ending up in psychiatric wards. I've known of people ending up in prison. I've known of people ending up causing harm in churches, of doing things illegal, of attacking people, of all sorts of things. Young men, 
There's one female in the world whose body you should see, and that should be your future wife, after she is your wife. We live in a culture where with just a click or two, and sometimes not a click, it just comes in an advertisement or something and tries to get you to go somewhere, and there's a world of filth out there. And so many parents are underestimating the threat. I've heard young men talk about their pornography problems and hear person after person after person after person telling their story, and it begins like this. While I was in my room on my computer, while I was in my room on my computer, while I was at home alone on my computer, while I was in my room on my computer, I was in my room watching TV. Parents, you wouldn't allow toxic filth to come through your water system. You wouldn't allow somebody to bring a rattlesnake into your house. If your son says, Mom, can I have a gerbil? You might say yes. If he says, can I have a rattlesnake in my room? You would say no. If he says, well, I'll have a filter on top of the cage. You would say no. We're not going to have a rattlesnake in the house. You know what the average introduction to pornography age is for young men in America? And this is several years ago. It's pro I wouldn't be surprised if it's lower now. Eleven. On average, that's the age in which young men in our country now are being exposed to Internet pornography. It's devastating. And once they get into it, sometimes it gets worse and worse and worse, and sometimes it can ruin them for healthy attitudes in, in marriage later. Please think about the devastation that can happen that's available from all the corruption on the Internet, and don't put a computer or a TV set in your child's room. Be careful about that. Offenders, predators, old and young. And this, I think, is being accelerated by the Internet. Do you remember, I'm not, I don't have time to talk about this, but there's, there's the number of sexual offenders out there. It's, we don't live in as safe a world as we used to live in. Educational agendas, presuming medication solutions for behavioral issues, feminist agendas, declining standards of self-responsibility. There's a world of threats. It's our job to train our children better than that. And lastly, let's talk about this. Well, I'm just going to mention this now. Maybe we'll come back to it in the question and answer thing. Don't lower the bar from the firstborn to the baby. How many times have you seen it? A family does a good job with their firstborn, and then they slack up till you get to the baby, and the baby's just utterly irresponsible. He deserves the same training. And maybe in the question we can talk about some of those points. There's some really interesting stuff about that. But I want to mention this two things here. Have early training accomplished. Use age-appropriate consequences. Like as I got older, I would, I would find my son. You know, he wasn't purposely being defined, but if I say, like, you remember not to talk to your sister this way, or remember to clean up your room, and then later he forgets. It's not that he's saying, I'm going to disobey. It just wasn't that important to him. So I'd say, okay, five bucks. <laughs> five bucks. That got his attention. You know, so he was age-appropriate thing. When it starts costing money, it comes up on the priority list. Uh, watch trajectory and role models. Make time for the family meal and other positive family interaction. You saw there in Proverbs 15, better is a dinner of vegetables and herbs where love is. Don't be one of those homes where there's not even a dinner or food together. Somebody's back here 
you know, with, with a TV tray in front of the TV, somebody's over here, somebody's heating up something in the microwave and going to their room. Don't be that family. Sit down, have time together, have a meal together. Give thanks together before God. Discuss, interact. Teach life lessons, train respect for gender roles, retain respect as parents while engaging adults as adults, and study the Word with them. As they get older, talk to them about the Word of God like you would if you see a flaw in there. You're not now just a parent. If they become a Christian now, they're your brother and sister in Christ. Sit down and discuss Scripture with them. The Scriptures are profitable for teaching correction. Sit down and study the Bible with them. Help them teaching. Encourage healthy independence and do not accept or enable bad behavior. The prodigal son was welcomed by the father when he left his worthless lifestyle and came home. Would he have? Do you remember when the prodigal son came to himself? Look at Luke chapter 15. What's the last thing it said before he came to himself? Everybody turn there and look. Luke chapter 15. When he came to himself, how many father, hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare? I'm going to go back and say, I've sinned before God and in your sight. I'm not worthy to be your son. What's the last, one of you men tell me, what's the last thing he said, the text says, before he came to himself? It's at the end of verse 16. The very last phrase. Nobody gave to it. There's so many parents right now enabling. You got you got a 32-year-old son living in the basement smoking pot, being irresponsible. The rest of the family saying, why are you letting him do that? And mom and dad are still giving him and enabling him. Don't do that. Don't be the enabler. I don't have time to talk about that. It's a valuable thing. Last thing I want to say. Instill humility. Sometimes brethren fail to do this. While they're getting their children to excel at school and excel in behavior and excel in memorizing their Bible verses and excel at everything else, they forget to train them to be humble. And you know what? If we don't instill humility, the rest really doesn't matter. Of the 67 abominations before the God, what is one of them? A haughty look. You raise a child that doesn't admit when he's wrong and doesn't apologize, you're raising a person that is not going to heaven. There's too many brethren that are doing a lot of things right, but when they're wrong, they will not admit it and they won't apologize. Those people aren't people going to heaven. We have to be willing to admit when we're wrong. And people that don't, have a big problem with humility. Train humility. Teach them humility. Teach them, as it says in Philippians, not to look to their own things, but also to the things of others. Train them to humble themselves before God and in dealing with other people, and you'll have done them a great, 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 great service. Thank you, and I commend you in your efforts, and I thank you for your attention this evening.
we're going to take just a couple of minutes, uh, your blue cards. If you have written any questions on those cards, just hold them up so the guys can see. If you have written your name and address and a request for the tape, CD, audio, or DVD video, Hold up, hold up your cards. You don't, if, you, if you gave us a card last night with your request, you don't have to repeat it. But uh, if you have questions or requests for the audio and video, uh, hold up your cards and the guys will pick them up. It'll take just a minute. Scott will come back up here and deal with the, whatever questions you have suggested. This is a good question. At what age would you start to spare the rod? Uh, or to not spare the rod, I think is the point. Clearly, the colder they are, different things get their attention, like the five bucks. And, you know, my 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old son or something, I'm not going to say, okay, bend over, get a spank it, you know, find it or something else. Um, at what age to spank? It depends on the child. And you remember last night we put on the chart, older women train the younger women? If you're at that stage and you're not sure, ask an older woman that you expect. It really does differ from child to child. I didn't tell you how old Zach was when the pants story happened because he was really little. And I don't want people to assume that every child that age can understand and be that responsible. But I know my different children. And... Zach, in some ways, was often ahead. In some ways, he's been behind some things. But in other ways, he's been ahead on some things. Uh, and so I knew he understood, and everybody in the family knew he understood. Uh, April, her first spanking was she was in the bathroom, and she started pulling the toilet paper down. And Bertina said, no, no. And she started pulling the toilet paper down. So then Bertina took her little hand and went, no, no. And she went, <laughs> But then she understood, okay, I'm not supposed to do that. And she was, I don't remember how old, but, but pretty small. Don't start disciplining a child before they understand. That's, that's, that's not a good thing. Uh, when they're behaving badly, before they learn to talk, they can learn some things about their behavior in a little swat. It doesn't need to be real hard on a small child. Uh, but it will differ from child to child, and if you're uncertain, talk to your mom or a, another mom that you really respect for dealing with children and say, could you help me with this? Come watch what he's doing. Do you think he understands? And if, especially if it's first child. If you've had another child and another child, you'll start realizing, I know what he understands. I know what she understands. It'll vary a little bit age to age. Um, I'm going to come back to this in a second. Is it okay to delay punishment? Yeah, when we get home, you will be spanked because of public perception gets spanked. Absolutely. Um, when they're real little, I think it's better to do it then because they might forget what it was for. You know, if a little child, you say, okay, when we get home, you're going to get a spanking for this. And, you know, you get home an hour and a half later, they don't even remember what they did. Well, that's, that's totally ineffective. But don't be one of those parents that says, you just wait till we get home. And then you go home, your mood changes, and nothing happens. Um, I remember Luke one time, I got home, and he said, Dad, remember, I've got to get a spanking. You know, I'd forgotten. So I said, oh, thanks for reminding me, Luke. Gave him the spanking. Um, because of public perception against spanking, 
Somebody asked me about this last night. Be careful. I'll tell you, though, that I have decided not to refuse to spank in public. I know that there's people out there that want to call DSS, but it's not against the law yet. And it's still biblical. And I'm afraid that if we all hide discipline, it only encourages those people who think it's a terrible thing. But I would say this. If you discipline in public, make it very, very clear what's going on. And I, I mentioned this. I, I was at Hershey Park, and Luke was about four. I was about to take him on a little train. And he's excited. He's jumping up and down. He's about to be bumping into this woman. I said, Luke, you're bu- about to bump into that person. Stop jumping. And then later he started jumping again. Well, but I went about it in a way that nobody could ever say that was child abuse. I said, uh-oh, Luke, what did Daddy say? He said not to jump. And what did Luke do? I jumped. <laughs> I said, what do you got to get? A spanking. And he held up his little hand, and I gave him a little tap. Now, how on earth could anybody see that say that was child abuse? The woman behind me goes, that's what we need more of. You know, so I would say, you know, if you could be very careful so that anybody's seeing it instead of thinking, oh, like if you're turning around, stop that. But if you do it very careful, very calmly, very, you know, uh, way that no way could somebody think you're really hurting the child or anything, that that could be uh, a good thing. But other times, yeah, I think it's effective to uh, go home. Uh, how do you deal with sibling rivalry? It's part of training their hearts. It's part of humility. Teach them. If you go through life only being happy when you win, you've just guaranteed that you're going to be miserable a lot of the time. I try to teach my kids, be happy for the other person when they win. There's a little exercise I do with kids sometimes when they're having trouble with at, being able to win or lose. And so I'd say, we're going to play a game. And we take a quarter and say, we're going to play, is it a quarter or not? And uh, so, what is it? Say quarter. You're right! Yay! Let's play again. Yay! Boy, you guys are so smart. Yeah. Is that a real fun game? No. <laughs> because you, you only win. So then we change it to heads or tails, and they thought, oh, it's more fun to win when sometimes you lose. And learn to preach. Somebody said about humility, it might have been John R. Stock, humility is not a pretty girl saying she's ugly. Humility is being able to enjoy that something's been done well, whether you did it or somebody else did. Train your children to love their siblings and to be able to be happy uh, for them. Uh, what do you think of timeout? It can be useful, um, and not everything is defiance. Sometimes you're just too excited and wound up and you need them to settle down. You might stand in the corner or time out. Defiance is more what needs a spanking. Other times I mean you to settle down. That could be good. But if that's all you do, what do you do when the child says, no? Oh, now you get two timeouts. No. <laughs> oh, now it's three timeouts. You know, you, you've got to have some control. Um, how do you reconcile the passage in 1 Samuel 3.13 where Eli was punished for not rebuking or restraining his sons? Ezekiel 18, where it says the son will not bear the punishment of the father's iniquity, nor bear, nor will the father bear the punishment of the son's iniquity. In other words, what if you as a parent failed to discipline your child as you should in some instances when they were younger, now they're older, out on their own, and you can see some of the results. How does such a parent escape the fate of Eli? And he, can he, she escape this fate? 
Forgiveness is something that all of us need, young and old. I've done things failing as a parent. My children will make some mistakes as parents. You that are parents have made some mistakes as parents. When we make a mistake, we can apologize and turn around and do better and be forgiven by God. Eli, you, you see it's kind of a whiningness in when he says to his sons, why do you do this? He's a, he shouldn't have been allowing this to be done. It's kind of like the enabling parent that, you know, oh, I wish you wouldn't be like, but you're enabling. He should have restrained. He should have done something. And he was punished for that. All of us have made mistakes. If we realize I did that wrong, ask forgiveness before God. And then our, once our children grown and on their own, they are responsible before God. We need forgiveness, not just on parenting issues, but on all sorts of issues. And that involves repentance and realizing, I should have done this different. I'm sorry. With our tongues, with our actions, with our failures to do things, etc. At what age do you stop spanking and use other techniques? I usually probably about the time, I usually don't spank them after they're a teenager. Uh, that, that, that's going to vary age, age, but you, you're, as they start becoming young adults, it's just, it's not, it's, it's just not as effective as some other things. Uh, it's, it's a little bit more humiliating in a non-productive way, uh, I think. Uh, what's the improvement gain? Oh, I'm glad somebody asked that. Um, I got three last questions here. The improvement game, our family has really enjoyed this, and it goes like this. We go around, we sit down, and sometimes kids say, can we play the improvement game? And we start with the youngest, Luke, and we say, what has Luke been doing better at? And then Zach, we go age up. Zach says, he's been doing better at this. Then TJ says, he's done a good job with this. Brianne says, he's doing this well. Adam says this, et cetera. Then mom says what he's doing well, and then I say what he's doing well. Then we say, what does Luke need to improve at? And Zach says, he needs to stop doing this. TJ says, he needs to stop doing that. Maybe Brian says, same thing Zach said, he needs to stop doing that. Each, you tell one thing they need to improve at. Then when we're done with Luke, we go to Zach. What's he been doing right? Everybody one thing. What's he need to improve on? Then we go to TJ, then Brianne, then Adam, and when April was home, April, and then Mom, and then Dad. And they'll go around, what's Dad been doing better at? Dad's been doing this, 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 this. What's Dad need to improve at? He needs to not do this, or he needs to do this. And I'll tell you what, when three or four of them all say the same thing you need to improve on, you know, you need to improve on it. And it gives you a chance to do better. Then it's real nice if, you know, later... Not, you do the improvement game, and none of them mentioned that thing before that they wanted to improve on. So everybody knows they're going to get some constructive criticism, and it's just a good way uh, of doing things. And don't be afraid to admit your parent to your children when you've made a mistake and apologize to them. Think about your own parents. If you had parents that refused to ever apologize, which perhaps some of you did, did that convince you they never did anything wrong? One of the things we can show our children in instilling humility is, here's what you do when you do something wrong. You let yourself be held accountable for it and say, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. 
and even if it's to your little child. I remember TJ one time. I was in a bad mood, and I was kind of speaking in a grouchy voice, and my little five-year-old tab said, Daddy, right now I think you're making the devil happy. <laughs> you know, that gets you. Um, next to last question. Uh, what advice, scripture, do you have for parents teaching young children and preparing them for a society or nation that is profaning marriage on all levels? Oh, um, preparing for marriage. Have hearts that are trained. Understand the folly of, mar- folly of marrying the ungodly. What ruined Solomon? First Kings 11. Uh, reject worldly standards. Just because the world does this, that does not mean that's what you're going to do when you're dating or courting. Um, instill generationally responsibility. Remember in Ruth, at the end of the book, and what do they say to Naomi? How blessed are you now that the Ruth and Boaz have a child? You'll have somebody to take care of you when you're older. Remember in 1 Timothy 5, children, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them you know, teach the idea of generational responsibility. Understand what love is. Young men, when you say, oh, I'm in love, I'm going to get married. I love her, I love her. What do you love about her? Well, I love the way she flips her hair. I love the way she talks. I love the way she walks. I love the twinkle in her eye. I love the way she laughs at my jokes. I love her eyes. I love how she looks. You know what all that is? That's what you get. Suppose she's in a car accident tonight and she's badly burned. Do you still love her? Still want to get married to her? Her face is scarred. You know what love is? John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave. Love is not just about getting. Love is about giving. Um, some other things there don't have time. I, there's so many things that could be said on that. Um, I don't have time to say much more on that. Remind them that they're selecting their father or mother. Understand marriage is for life. Pursue purity. Flee fornication. Young men, make a covenant with your eyes. Make sure they know the responsibility for their new family and let them be their new family. Yeah. And lastly, uh, the thing about the oldest and youngest, and this is where we'll close. Lowering the bar from the firstborn to the baby. Luke chapter 15. I remember meeting a woman one time, and she had one child, very responsible, you know, uh, and everything. And the other child, he's in his 30s, doesn't have a job, smokes pot, living above the garage. And I didn't know the ages, and I hadn't met him. But as she described the two children, I asked about the son. I said, was he your baby? And she went, how did you know? Well, because it's, it's too typical. I'm not an oldest child. I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm not saying this because I'm an oldest child. But older children tend to be more mature and mature more quickly. And it doesn't have to be this way, but too often younger children are more irresponsible. It's even in the, uh, the story of the prodigal son. Jesus didn't have to tell us the age of the two sons, but he did. Which son wanted the money to go party? It was the younger son. What are some reasons why? For one thing, there's time. We have six children. When April was born, how much of our parenting time was devoted to April? All of it. 
Luke is one of six. How much of our parenting time does he get? Part of it. Pacifier illustration. When, you remember when you had your firstborn and you had that pacifier and the pacifier fell on the ground? Do you remember what you did? Oh no! You know, and you got it and you, you, you know, you sterilized it or maybe even threw it away and got a new one from the baby shower. You know, because you don't want some germs to get in your baby's mouth. Well, after a while, you see him licking the floor and kissing the dog and eating dirt out of I was at a jail one time. Another preacher and I were down there. We'd been studying with somebody. And he happened to have his little boy with him. I turned around, he's licking the jail floor. Oh, you know, but he lived. And realize, you know, they're not that, you know, it's not going to kill him. So by the time you get child number two, pass the fire falls on the ground, you can rinse it off in cold water. Child number three, wipe it off on your legs. You know, child number four, let the dog lick it. You stick it back in. You, you just don't care that much anymore. And what we realize is the first child didn't live because we sterilized the pacifier. He lived because he's tough. But then we do the same thing with the manners. With the first child, they had to say please. They had to say thank you. They had to share. They had to... And then it turned out great. And then we think, oh, that wasn't hard either. So we stop and see that did make the difference. The rules did make the difference for the behavior. The pacifier didn't make the difference for him living. But we let off on both things, and so that produces it. Another thing is, when your firstborn was born, he was born into a world of adults. Everybody else in the house was an adult. And babies start patterning themselves on people. So the firstborn is looking to adults, and they want to grow up quicker. The lastborn is born into adult, a house with kids, and so they model themselves after less mature patterns. Also, remember that firstborn, how eager you were to put the stickers in the baby book? First tooth, first smile, first word, and you kept waiting and waiting and waiting for it to happen, and it seemed like it wasn't going to happen, but it did! He kept wanting happen, happen, happen. And then all of a sudden you realize, wow, that all went by quick. And then you get to your last born and you start thinking, I don't want this one to grow up too quick. Maybe to stay in diapers a little longer because it's cute or this or that. And when he's 37 and living in the basement and the older kids are saying, Mom, why are you paying his car insurance and his cell phone bill and doing his laundry. He doesn't even have a job. And she says, what does she say? Don't you talk about my baby. He quit being a baby a long time ago. One of the reasons is because Mama keeps treating him like baby because it is the last baby. But he needed to be trained to grow up to an adult just like the first one did. So give the training and high expectations of that last born like he did the first for his son. Then let him give you some grandbabies to dote on. All right. Thank you very much. I sure appreciate your attention and your questions. Well, that brings to a close our two nights of Bible studies in the park. We sure enjoyed it. It's been great. We've been taught some valuable, important truths from the Word of God. We've got young families.